police are looking into um, bank records today to see if there's any activity and anything. Um, so hopefully um, they get a location of that if, if the bank card has been used because um, that was the only thing that was with her, a bank card and a phone. She left her purse at home. Um, so hopefully something's picked up with that. Okay. Any luck with the phone? Has that been any help at all? Um, no, not really. I, well, the night she went missing, I, I rang her about like hundreds of times, but... Um, the phone went. The phone rang, but went to voicemail. Then about eight in the morning, it just the battery must have died. It went straight to voicemail. So um, the police were. I, I asked the police to look into kind of tracing it, but I don't. I don't know if we can if it's if the phone's off. So um, I'm not sure how uh, how much help the phone's going to be. Do you know what, sorry, do you know yeah. what the police will be doing today? They're, they're just going to do the bank records thing, and that's. Um, I think they're just doing this, uh, a scan of the area as well. I think they're down. In, sorry, excuse me. I think they're down in Hope Street right now, doing a bit of a. Um, just to scan of the area, uh, but other than that, I don't really know until they update me. So, yeah. what about yourself? Do you plan to do something, or what, what do you do? Well, we're, we're still um, doing lo- loads of postering and Facebook campaigning, Twittering, all that stuff. But uh, we just want to get. Uh, I'm doing loads and loads of interviews and uh, media stuff. Just, I just want to get as, as much out there as possible. You know, it's it's Friday night in, in Sydney Road. It's you know, it's busy. People have to have seen something, or you know. Somebody has to have seen Joe at some stage. Um, so I just want people to kind of really think if they've seen anything at all uh, to contact the police. And she's a regular at the bar, isn't she? Yeah. What have the guys or the, the staff and the owners said? Did they see her leave or anything? They like saw her leave, yeah. So um, they said she left uh, maybe at 1.30 and uh, that was, um, she left with some work, work friends, but I, I, that's all they really know because she went to another bar after that. So um, they don't really know what happened to her after that but they're really upset as well because obviously they know Jill and um, you know that's her bar you know that's where she always goes Tom what are you going through? Uh, hell <laughs> it's just devastating but um, yeah just trying to push on um, as much as possible what's uh, keeping you what's keeping you going? just uh, hope just hope somebody saw something or she just walked through the door do you still think that you know, could happen today that you I have to I have to yeah. Hi guys, welcome to episode 12 of the True Crime Sisters podcast. As usual, we just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who's been showing us support over the last two months that we've been putting our podcast out there. It's been so encouraging to hear that people are enjoying our take on these cases that we're so passionate about. Before we start today's case, I just wanted to thank our newest Patreon supporters, Peppa and Rebecca. For anyone else who's interested in supporting the podcast, you can check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Sisters. We will be releasing our first patron-only podcast episode on the 5th of September to thank our patrons for their support. You can also show your support by following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and we love chatting to everyone there and hearing your thoughts on the show. Okay, so now that that's out of the way, it's time for us to get on to today's case. So I'll pass you over to Bill. Thanks, Harry. I did just want to mention about our episode we covered last week, the Bowerville uh, murders. We did um, forget to mention at the start as a disclaimer to Indigenous people, we were mentioning people who had died and we were saying their full names. Um, once a Indigenous Australian has passed away, um, they don't like to mention their names or also um, see photos of them. So 
We do apologise that we didn't put a disclaimer at the start of that episode that we were going to be mentioning people's full names. And we just wanted to thank Erica for making us aware of that. So we did do research on the Indigenous culture before we um, went straight into that, but obviously we both sort of overlooked that one. So we didn't see it and we didn't come across it. So yeah, we did just want to apologise about that. And we wanted to, yeah, thanks Erica for pointing that out to us also. So with today's case, we are talking about a case that was huge for Melbourne back in 2012. It got us talking about victim blaming and the state of parole boards here in Australia. Today we are talking about the murder of Jill Ma. Gillian Edie McKean, known as Jill to the public, was born on the 30th of October 1982 in Droida Island. And I do just want to apologise if I said that name of that town wrong as well. At seven years of age, Jill moved with her mother, Edith, father George and younger brother Michael to Perth, Western Australia, reportedly for George's work. Jill and her family moved between Perth and Ireland for years before Jill officially settled in Australia for good. But first she completed her tertiary studies at the University College of Dublin, where she met her husband-to-be, Thomas Marr. The young couple married in July 2008 and moved together to Melbourne, Australia in 2009. They looked forward to the lifestyle Melbourne had to offer as well as the career prospects. Jill worked as a unit coordinator at the AVC Corporation in Southbank. She was well-loved by her co-workers. Her job required her to liaise between local radio stations in Victoria as well as provide administrative support for the local radio station 774 Melbourne. According to all who knew her, she was a shining light. In the time since her abduction and murder, she has been described as intelligent, funny, empathetic and positive, bringing joy to those who surrounded her. Jill and Tom Ma were living together on Lux Way off Hope Street in Brunswick, a trendy suburb just north of Melbourne CBD. The population of Brunswick is made up of a large number of students and is also known for its Greek and Italian communities. Like many young people who flock to the area, I'm sure Jill and Tom enjoyed the trendy, artsy culture the suburb offers. By all reports, the couple had a happy marriage and were discussing future plans, including buying their own place and having kids. On the 31st of August 2012, Jill's dad George had a stroke. This was a devastating blow for the family and Jill, who was in Ireland for a friend's wedding, flew home as soon as she could to be by her father's side. The family remembers Jill giving her dad the stern word to stay alive. She wanted her future children to have a grandfather to play with. She was extremely close to her parents and brother and stayed with them in Western Australia until the 14th of September when she decided it was time to fly back to Melbourne. By all reports, the 21st of September started like any other work day for Jill Ma. After work, leaving at approximately 5.45pm, Jill attended a co-worker's birthday drinks in the city. At approximately 9pm, Jill and three co-workers decided to leave the birthday drinks and head to the Brunswick Green Hotel on Sydney Road to continue to have some drinks. The Brunswick Green is a trendy bar and beer garden on the busy and trendy Sydney Road. The group enjoyed drinking and socialising until the bar closed at 1am. At 1am, Jill and one other co-worker decided to head over to the quirky bar Etiquette, which has now closed down, to have a final drink before finishing up for the night. The pair hung out for about half an hour when they decided to wrap up the night. Jill's co-worker offered to give her a ride home, but she told him she lived only five minutes away. Jill decided to walk home and declined the offer. 
which is normal. Like yeah, five absolutely. You just think it's a quick walk and yeah. you'd be home. According to Google Maps, the walk from bar etiquette to Jill's home in Lux Way was probably closer to 10 minutes long, but the majority of the walk was along the busy Sydney road. So that's a very busy street at night. So it's like any kind of um, semi-major suburb, I guess. It's quite close to the city. There's cars and people going through there at all times of the night. Yeah. It's just outside of the city and it is yeah. a really trendy place. Like if you're there at night, it is a happening. It's not like a it's quiet. Busy. It's busy. So, I mean, you would, you can understand why she felt safe walking Absolutely. home. Absolutely. I yeah. feel like anyone would around that area at Absolutely. that time. Obviously a lot has changed now though. Oh, this case yeah. has changed this case a lot. changed a lot. Yeah. CCTV footage caught Jill walking in the direction of Hope Street. Unfortunately, Jill Ma never arrived home. Tom Ma woke up at around 2am and looked at his phone to see a text message that his wife had sent him earlier that night, inviting him to come out for a drink. Tom tried calling her mobile phone repeatedly between 2 and 6am, but it rang out and eventually appeared to have been switched off. At 4am, when Jill still wasn't home, Tom set out on the streets of Brunswick searching for his wife. By 6am, with no word from Jill, Tom Ma contacted the police. What Tom didn't know was that Jill's last moments were not spent alone. That night, she was targeted by a monster. As Jill walked towards her home at 1.30am, a man spotted her and decided to follow her. Jill was seen on CCTV approaching a small group of people and asking for a cigarette or a lighter, just before continuing her journey home. Also on CCTV, a man in a blue hoodie was seen jogging after the beautiful 29-year-old woman who had no idea she was being stalked by evil. As he closed in on Jill, his pace slowed. He actually walked past Jill only to turn around and can be seen on CCTV footage as he began to engage with her. We can never be 100% sure of what was said between the two, only that they spoke. Reportedly, Jill placed a call to her brother either before or potentially after the man approached her, maybe to put some distance between herself and the man trying to exchange words with her. Which, if you think about it, is a smart tactic for her to get on the phone. Like, Absolutely. I feel like that's a pretty common thing to do when someone you don't want to talk to is trying. Even pretending to talk like, with you. Yeah. Actually, yeah, called somebody, so good on it. That's a good good idea. And it sucks that we as women have to kind of bring on these tactics mm. as well because really we shouldn't have creeps approaching us. You sort of, most women know you just need like a handful of tactics in yeah, your pocket. Yeah, absolutely. Which really does suck. And just a shout out if we have any male listeners, if you see a woman walking alone at night, don't approach her. Yes. She will be creeped out, like, whether your intentions are good or not. Just yeah, I'm sure most people have good intentions, but yeah, it's a little... As a woman, it's scary. We've been conditioned to believe it is scary to have a man approach us at night. Well, sometimes I suppose it might be considered okay. Like if you're out, like sometimes you go out to have that interaction with people. Obviously she's walking home, she's alone. It's a little bit different. But what if... I more mean is yeah. if you're walking in an area, like if I was just going for a walk around my suburb at night, yeah. no one needs to approach me. Yeah, I'm but you fine. don't live in the city. So if I was walking around Brunswick at night and I was like walking around, and I was on a night out and someone comes up and is like, hey, how you going? I'd be like, hey, yep, good. Like I'd be like... I wouldn't mind that interaction. Do you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't say that all guys, all girls. I kind of wouldn't generalise because I kind of don't. I'm sort of like I enjoy the interaction of people. Okay, well, potentially my introverted ways yeah. of intervening here, but if you see me walking in the streets <laughs> and you know who I am, do not approach. No one knows what we look like, but okay. Jill's brother Michael reported that they discussed their father's health and Jill was upset. Eventually both Jill and Bailey continued down Sydney Road towards Hope Street and out of view of CCTV footage. 
From this point onward, we can only speculate on what happened based on the evidence and the word of a man who has long been known for his dishonesty and disgusting behaviour. So it sounds like her call was probably a little bit more legitimate than actually... Yeah, exactly. But it is a good strategy regardless. Adrian Ernest Bailey may look like your average, fairly unattractive, middle-aged gym junkie. But in reality, he's the type of monster you would never want to meet in a dark alleyway. The twice-married father of four has a history of sexual offences so long and violent, it is unbelievable that he was out in the streets at all. In 1990, when Bailey was 18 years of age, he raped a 16-year-old friend of his sister. Two months later, while he was on bail for the first rape, he attacked and attempted to rape a 17-year-old girl who he didn't know. He also threatened to kill her. So this pattern of behaviour for him developed at a very young age. Um, I'm not actually sure about his childhood, but he obviously developed a hatred for women at quite a young age. Yeah, some very disturbing behaviours there. Later that year, he attacked another 16-year-old girl. She was a hitchhiker who he had picked up. He drove her to a remote area and attempted to sexually assault her before she managed to escape. For these three violent and horrible offences, he received a five-year sentence but only served around half of that, which is so wrong. So wrong. That's Australia for you. It's, we have quite lenient sentences. Especially, Yeah, definitely. Especially if someone hasn't been killed. It is literally yeah. like, oh, well. Even if they have been killed. Yeah, true. It's lenient in comparison to other yeah, countries. That's true. In April 2001, Bailey was arrested and charged with 16 counts of rape that he had committed between September 2000 and March 2001. It was revealed that Bailey would pick up sex workers and drive them down a laneway, parking the car right up against a fence so that when the women tried to exit the car, they wouldn't be able That's to. That's terrifying. How disgusting is that? And Can you even imagine being counts. them? He should yeah. absolutely have never disgusting. been out of prison. That's disgusting. He that would, is so scary. Yeah. It's poor women. He would then submit the women to depraved and forceful sexual acts, which were absolutely non-consensual. When the women pleaded and cried out for help, he callously ignored them. As you can imagine, the psychological implications for these women were enormous. For these crimes, Bailey was sentenced to 11 years in prison. He served nine and was released in 2010. How did they, how can, like, so on what terms does that all work? Because he's obviously going to re-offend. So why does he get to come out after nine years? Like, I don't quite understand. Like, so is that how so it they, works? Like, yeah, so there is some level of rehabilitation in prison. I mean, I don't think it's great. Obviously, they're not going to pump, like, m- pump funds in for the best of the best psychological mm, care. Yeah. But from what I understand, they are assessed on, I don't know, a year-to-year basis, maybe longer on whether or not they are suitable to be paroled from a certain point. And um, he was assessed as medium risk at one point, high risk at another point. And I think when they released him, he was actually medium risk, which I still think is too high. Medium risk, that is like it's not you're low. at a moderate level yeah. of reoffending, and yet we are still comfortable putting you out on the streets. And the other thing I just have to say I do not like about Australia is no one knows about this. So there's no register. There's no, we don't know. We don't know. So... This is the thing that gets me really irritated. So, okay, it's one thing if we've got these lenient sentences and these people are allowed out after such a short amount of time. Well, then the public should know. We should, they should know, know who they are. Especially the moderates and highs. If they're getting released on a, on a moderate level, medium, whatever you said then, that's we should know that they're out there because that could have that could save so many people. Absolutely. We should be allowed to be vigilant. Like, I'm not calling for vigilante action at all. In fact, I'd further opposite, leave them to live their lives, but... Let us be aware of what we're dealing with when we're out in the public, you know? 
Absolutely. And it's actually the other way. Like it's actually illegal for someone to name somebody. So it's actually not only are they not named, if someone was to be like, hey, heads up to everyone living in one certain suburb, this this guy now lives here and he's actually a medium and he and he's been he's offended sixteen times and this is what he does to women. We you get you're in actually trouble. in trouble. Yeah. You've broken the law. Ridiculous. Like that just yeah that does that's so irritating. Ridiculous. In two thousand and eleven, on a night out in Geelong, Bailey King hit a twenty year old man, causing him to fall unconscious and smash his head upon landing. Despite this act of violence and the fact that it was a parole violation, he was allowed to remain on the streets. And just if anyone isn't aware of what a king hit is, it might just be a term we use in Australia. So it may also be known as a sucker punch or a coward's punch. And it's just when someone punches someone without warning as hard as they can. And it doesn't really give the person a chance to defend themselves. So it can be from behind, in front, but it's just an unexpected, as hard as you can punch. And sometimes it can be fatal also. Yeah, I think often the victim um, is unconscious before they hit the ground. So they they don't have those body reactions Mm. where they... Um, automatically try to prevent their head from hitting the ground. So often you're unconscious and your head hits the ground at full mm. force and that obviously can be quite fatal. And so obviously when Bailey did this, he was just, he couldn't give a shit. Like he, he didn't, didn't care. He didn't care. This he is didn't the, think about the implications. This is the kind of person that he is. Based on his past offences, Bailey had an overwhelming desire to randomly attack and humiliate women. Throughout the years that he was free from incarceration, there was an escalating pattern of violence that was extremely concerning. Although we don't have 100% insight into how the Adult Parole Board operates, it's hard to comprehend how he was allowed out on the streets after continually and repeatedly perpetrating such violent offences against women. It does seem like the balance is tipped in the favour of the offenders rather than the public safety, and Bailey is the perfect example of this. While Jill was out with her co-workers celebrating a birthday, Bailey was also out for the night. He was in the Melbourne CBD at Lounge Bar with a co-worker along with his girlfriend at the time. How do these people get girlfriends? That's what I wonder. As the night went on, Bailey began to become jealous of other men interacting with his girlfriend and after a fight, she decided to return to their house in Coburg. Later in the night, Bailey also returned to the Coburg address, changing into the infamous blue hoodie and heading back out again. Bailey was most likely angry when he left. His girlfriend wasn't acting as he wanted her to, and his characteristic hatred of women was likely triggered at this point, at no fault of his girlfriend, who was reportedly unaware of the extent of his offending history. Bailey states that when he approached Jill, he was trying to help her as she looked distressed. He says that he didn't get angry until she flipped him off and rebuffed his attempts to engage with her. Knowing his past history, it's hard to believe that he would chase a woman down the street purely to see if she was okay. So I think we can safely chalk that up as bullshit. So after searching the streets of Brunswick and not being able to contact his wife, Tom Ma made the decision to contact police to report Jill missing. Police searched the area and did what police do. They started by interviewing those close to Jill. As you would expect, Tom and Jill's apartment and lives were examined under a microscope. Most of the time, when foul play is involved, the police don't need to look much further than those closest to the victim. Police took the Mars car away for forensic analysis and turned their apartment upside down. They processed the apartment for a total of five hours and at one point there were so many forensic specialists inside the apartment that Tom Ma and Jill's brother Michael McKean were forced to sit outside on the balcony for approximately two hours. Eventually police leave the apartment with multiple evidence bags. Following this, Tom Ma was cleared. 
And you can really see the distress in his face when he fronted the media about Jill's disappearance. I really felt for him. He was obviously oh, going, going through, through hell. The worst just time so of his sad. life. But he was very, yeah. Well, he was very composed, but you could just see that he was like broken. Yeah, absolutely. During one of the police searches of the area, they stumbled across Jill's handbag, which contained her work identification and personal belongings, but not her mobile phone. In their initial search of that area, the bag had not been there, and they were sure they didn't just overlook it. As it turned out, a member of the public had initially found and taken the bag home, but returned it to the area when they found out its owner was a missing person. Jill's bank accounts had not been accessed, and her mobile phone was not used since the time she was thought to have gone missing. Jill's brother Michael McKean, who had been speaking to her before she disappeared, said that she had seemed worried when she hung up. He'd tried to call her back multiple times, but to no avail. She didn't pick up her phone. On the Thursday after Jill disappeared, police released CCTV footage to the public. For the first time, we were able to see the images of Jill engaging with a man in a blue hoodie. In the footage, you could see multiple people and cars were passing the two. Police made it clear that contrary to initial public speculations, they had cleared Tom Ma and they were focusing in on the man with the blue hoodie, who we now know was the violent offender, Adrian Ernest Bailey. Reportedly, a member of the Victorian police recognised the man on the CCTV footage talking to Jill as Bailey. And after looking into it and identifying Bailey's extensive offending history, police fears for Jill's safety grew. They were concerned that if Jill was still alive, the release of the CCTV footage to the public could trigger the violent man to harm her. That's a, that's a tricky one, isn't it? They it don't want to scare the guy almost that we know it's him, but yeah. at the same time they want to they want everyone else to identify. I him guess that and... kind of explains why often the police hold on to things yeah. and later down the track we're like, why didn't they release it earlier? There's, but they there's always usually have their a reason. reason. Yeah, absolutely. At approximately two thirty p.m. on Thursday, the twenty seventh of September, two thousand and twelve, police arrested Adrian Ernest Bailey at his Coburg home in relation to the disappearance of Jill Ma. Police brought Bailey into the Secure Road Police Complex to interview him. Of course, initially, Bailey denied having anything to do with her disappearance. At 10pm, police leave the complex with Bailey, beginning their journey to bring Jill home. And just if anyone is a little bit more interested in um, this case and how that interview all went down, there is actually a documentary called Convicted. Um, so it's definitely worth checking that out. And it is actually really interesting as the tactics that the officers used yeah. to get him to come around and actually end up driving them out. And, and you can find that on Netflix or YouTube. Yeah, Australian Netflix. Yeah. So. Bailey led police to Black Hill Road in Gisborne South, which is approximately 55 kilometres northwest of Melbourne CBD. Bailey had dumped Jill in a shallow grave off the side of a lonely stretch of road in the farming town. According to police, Bailey sobbed as he led them to where Jill lay, but most likely those tears were only for himself. According to reports, he didn't even leave the police car when they reached the spot where Jill had been left alone. In his interview with police, Bailey stated that he never intended to hurt Jill, only to rape her, which is absolutely repulsive, like that's any better. He says he offered to help her and she wasn't interested in accepting this. At this point, any other normal man would have just left her alone to continue her walk home, but not Bailey. He waited until she had reached the dark and deserted Hope Street, before dragging her into an alleyway and subjecting her to brutal and revolting sexual assaults. A witness who lives near the Hope Street alleyway where Bailey had dragged Jill reported hearing a woman yelling, 
get out of there, loudly. He reported that the voice sounded as though it may have been coming from an intoxicated woman, but he had assumed it was a resident of a nearby apartment and the police were not called. According to reports, Jill was raped in the alleyway, perhaps more than once. Following the sexual assault, Bailey compressed Jill's airways until the life drained from her body. According to the post-mortem reports from the Victorian Institute of Medicine, bruises and lacerations were consistent with Jill's rape and attack. Her death is listed by the coroner as being caused by compression of the neck. Bailey reportedly left Jill in the laneway while he returned to his home in Coburg to retrieve his car and a shovel. At 4.42am, Bailey's car was picked up on CCTV footage entering back into the deserted laneway, presumably to collect Jill's body. He then drove to Gisborne South, where he used his shovel to dig a shallow grave and bury Jill. When police searched Bailey's house, they found Jill's broken phone SIM card. His girlfriend had washed his clothes and found the SIM card. She placed it in the washing basket, not knowing whose it was. Bailey was arrested before she could ask him. As it turned out, Bailey had smashed Jill's phone in the driveway of his Coburg home after he buried Jill. They also found the shovel that was used to dig Jill's shallow grave. Contrary to what Bailey stated, he had gone to great lengths to conceal his involvement in the crime. The Saturday night after the murder, Bailey had gone to the car wash and completely cleaned out his car. On the Monday after the murder, Bailey had gone to the tyre shop and had all four of his tyres changed so that the car could not be linked to any of the tyre tracks near the gravesite. So he's obviously very calculated. He's calculating. Like, he can say all he wants that he didn't plan it and this and that, but he seems to be very switched on when it comes to covering it up. I wonder if this is even the first time he did something so extreme. Yeah, I guess it's the first time that we know of, but you, you can never know, can you? Mm. Especially because he seems to have targeted sex workers so often and obviously their cases are often not as deeply investigated as other cases. Is it like that in Australia? It is. Oh. It is. When police looked into the activity on Jill's phone that night, they noticed that it was pinging off towers along the freeway towards Gisborne South. Not only this, but there was another phone that was mirroring the journey. Adrian Bailey's. Bailey had not realised that the two phones could be linked on that journey. Bailey started his police interrogation cocky. He had been questioned by police many times in the past and it was a situation that was not new to him. Bailey started his police interrogation very cocky. He had been questioned by police many times in the past and it was a situation that was not new to him. But after police put to Bailey all the evidence that linked him to Jill's murder in their interview, he finally confessed to her murder. He sobbed but I'm assuming those tears were more for him than, well, obviously, probably all for him. All for himself. Yep. On Friday the 28th, the day after Bailey led police to Jill's body, he was remanded in an out-of-sessions court hearing. He was denied bail due to the seriousness of the charges against him. On the 5th of April 2013, Adrian Ernest Bailey was convicted of the rape and murder of Jill Ma. He was later sentenced to 15 years imprisonment for the rape and life in prison. Because he pled guilty, he does have the opportunity to get parole eventually. But due to a non-parole period of 35 years, he's going to be a very old man if he ever gets out. But even still, like, I know, he's right? not going to be super old. He'll still I mean, be in his 70s or... 60s? Or... No, because he was 40, in his 40s when he got arrested. Okay. So he'd be late 70s. Jill was farewelled by her loved ones on October 5th, 2012, at a private funeral in Melbourne. Her loved ones remembered her sense of humour love of literature and dancing. 29 white doves were released to symbolise Jill's age and free spirit. 
Guests at the funeral wore white wristbands to signify the importance of ending violence against women. Following the funeral, Jill's family took her ashes home with them to Perth. Jill's murder sparked outrage throughout the city of Melbourne and all throughout Australia. How had someone with Adrian Bailey's offending history been allowed on our streets? How had he been allowed access to the women of Melbourne? On the 20th of October 2012, 5,000 people marched through the streets of Brunswick in an attempt to reclaim the night. Because after this, a lot of women felt very scared. And vulnerable. Yeah. The importance of the Reclaim the Night march is huge. As women, there is a different set of rules for us. The world tells us we shouldn't be walking the streets at night, we shouldn't wear certain clothing out of the house, and we shouldn't have a few drinks and then walk home. We're taught that when we walk home alone through a car park or at night, we should walk with our keys poking through our fingers as a weapon. Jill's murder left many of us feeling like that could have been any of us. We shouldn't have to go to these lengths to feel safe in our city. Why should we as women alter our behaviour to accommodate sexual predators? Why does the onus fall on us to prevent our own sexual harassment and assault? It baffles me. Yeah, I do remember around that time, even myself, like when I would go out with girlfriends after that, we always had that feeling and that thought in the back of our head about what had happened to Jill. And it just made you think every single time, it is that easy for it to happen. Like you could walk, be walking between two different bars and be like, mm. oh, there's an alleyway there at any moment I could be grabbed. I never really thought of it as an issue like that, like a sort of women had to think like that. I actually always just sort of assumed everyone did that. Like I, I've always done the keys between the fingers thing. Yeah. But I guess when you think about it, yeah, it often is sort of just being the physically weaker gender. Yeah. We just it's have just to biology. be. It's just biology. Men literally don't have to think that way. It just is how it is. And I, when so I was young, I, I didn't used to think that way. Yeah. Like when you're, when you're like a teenager or whatever, you think you're invincible. Mm. But I feel like once you get to a certain age and you read about stuff like this in the media, it completely changes the way you see the world. Yeah. Like it strikes fear into your heart and changes, like it changes how you act. Well, completely. Yeah, it's majority women, but it's definitely men too. Like I do have friends that are guys that have been king hit in the past yeah. and that's like a random – actually our brother, he got king hit at the station. True. So like it does actually happen both ways as well. Um, I guess it's just worth everyone being – just looking out for each other just when yeah. you're out there out and about, like especially if you're out at night and there's a lot of drinking involved, just look out for your mates. Like everyone just – Males, just females. Need to chill out. Like, yeah. just stay in your own lane, keep your head down, live your own life, and leave everyone else alone. Like. Yeah, I mean, that that would be amazing. But let's, that's unfortunately not how people are. So let us good people look out for our mates, and then yeah, then like that can hopefully stop some stuff happening. Because I feel like if you're in a pack, you're less likely to be attacked. But it just sucks that like we can't just walk home alone. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, isn't that it just bullshit that, you know, and you know, that we have to even think about this stuff is ridiculous. Well, I think the other thing to remember is don't be too overcautious. Like, I do still walk around by myself, like, actually almost every night I go for a mm. walk by myself, but... It's, but the, the, yeah. it's like the thoughts are always in your head. Like, if you're walking and you hear, like, a leaf crack behind you or yeah. something... The first thought is, oh, shit, is there someone following me? Like, the amount of times I've literally turned around and looked behind me when I'm walking my dog at night or something, Yeah, it's constant. Like, the fear is constant. I would say you're slightly more paranoid than your average Am person. I? Yeah, like, if, if a leaf cracks behind me, I'm thinking... Well, I feel like, in general, the people that cracked. would be listening to a true crime podcast, yeah. we're all probably a little bit paranoid. You know what I mean? We're listening to a true crime podcast. Yeah. I'm not, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I think that we just, yeah, look out for each other and hopefully we can, yeah, minimise these horrible, horrible attacks. Yeah. There are other issues that have come to the forefront as a result of Jill's murder. We all began to ask, 
How was a man like Adrian Bailey allowed out on parole in the first place? He obviously posed a huge risk to women. This was evident from his non-stop history of violent offences against women. How had the adult parole board allowed him back on the streets? There must be some kind of problem with their risk assessment and screening tools for someone like him to have gotten through all that and been back on the streets, which we've obviously just touched on previously, but just, yeah, yeah. just baffles me as well. Absolutely. They defend themselves, obviously, but we're, we as the people of Melbourne are the ones that suffer when these kind of people have been let out on the streets and this is not the only... This is not an isolated incident. No. This happens far too often in Melbourne. And he might be a smooth talker, like, yeah, cool, he can get through the parole, but I think his history should have... It I speaks for itself, It should have it? been irrelevant what he said. Like, it do, it's literally irrelevant what you have to say right now because this is your history. Yeah. Like, I don't get how... And, and he had, like, 20, yeah. 20 or something, like, something like 20 attacks yeah. on women. And I still come back to the fact that, okay, okay, we've let him out. That's, that's fine. Or not fine, but that's happened. Why are we not allowed to know... Like that, mm. these people are living near us. Like, I feel like there should. Okay, I get that. The, I feel like there should be a level. Okay, like I don't know. Like maybe if it happened once and they were young and they've spent ten years. I mean, years, I feel like there's sex offenders. Yeah. Like someone who urinates near a children's playground. That's a sex offender. Clearly, not necessarily a risk in any yeah. other way, except they made a mistake when they were young. So that should but be level who's one. Raped like we don't know nineteen. Had nineteen counts of rape or something like that. That's level five. Are you serious? That is a serious risk yeah. to society and always will be. Bailey's offending history was no secret. He had a long-term need to randomly attack, rape and humiliate women and there was no indication of any remorse or change to his behaviour. If Bailey had been imprisoned for violating his parole for king-hitting the man in Geelong, he wouldn't have been on the streets to murder Jill. This case revealed major flaws in Melbourne's criminal justice system and it's no surprise that it has sparked public outrage. Even police have admitted that they believe if Bailey hadn't been caught, Jill would not have been the last woman he murdered. He should not have been on the streets. His rights should not have been more important than the safety of the Australian public. Our justice system needs to stop pandering to these monsters and start putting public safety first. While this case brings up some extremely important issues, it is important to remember the vivacious woman who lost her life and those who have been left to live with the consequences of her chance meeting with a monster. From everything I've read, Jill sounds like an amazing woman and the world is a worse place without her in it. Our thoughts go out to Jill's husband and her family. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Please join us next week for episode 13. Until then, please stay safe.